0: Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 13, recorded on August 6th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Happy fake... Episode 13 to you.
1: <laughs> That's a little inside joke. Yeah, technically the 14th yeah. because of the, uh, the beta episode we did. It's made.
0: our secret, Josh. That's our little secret. <laughs> <laughs> Although you'd almost think it was the actual episode 13 because of some of the bad luck the Krita Foundation has had recently.
1: Yeah, so it turns out that being a nonprofit, and also selling stuff at the same time can land you in serious trouble with the tax authorities, yeah. at least in the Netherlands. Yeah,
0: yeah. I guess the creative Foundation thought everything was going along smooth. When they set up their foundation in 2013, they took advice of a local tax consultant and thought, okay, we've got this all dialed in. Until Dutch tax authorities told them otherwise. Essentially, they were operating as a charity, but also operating as a corporation, to use U.S. parlance. And um, that sort of got them in a catch-22 situation.
1: Yeah, they had claimed some VAT back that they shouldn't have and ended up with a 20,000 euro (laughs) tax bill.
0: Yeah, that's awful. And even after they were able to get it reduced to 15,000 euros, their accounting bill was 4,000 euros, so... jeez yeah so that's bad. yeah that's really bad. And you know I, I initially I thought why does why does Karita need a foundation? And I don't mean any disrespect to the project because uh, actually quite a bit of the artwork here at Jupiter Broadcasting was designed by artists using Corita. so I really think it's a great tool but I thought like why do they need a foundation? And then I realized, oh it's it's because you know they're paying Dimitri full- time to work on karita and they have other obvious expenses. kind of shows you how much is involved. Just to build a great design application. Once it gets to a certain size, it's more than code, Joe.
1: Well, yeah, it happens to a lot of projects, doesn't it? You grow to a point where you want to get paid to do it and you can put your time into it full time, and then you need to have some sort of legal framework in place. Yeah. Yep. But even though they thought they had it in place properly, this is still come back to bite them.
0: It's not ever going to be their strong suit. They want to focus on code. They want to focus on community. They don't want to focus on tax law. Who does? Yeah. But thankfully, the community have come to the rescue. Indeed. In fact, it looks like a pretty big outpouring of support just days after their announcement. In fact, on their blog, they write, we didn't expect... The incredible response from all of you, over 500 awesome people have donated 9,562 euros at the time of writing this post. But that's not all, actually. They also had private internet access, a VPN provider step up and offer sponsorship of 20,000 euros, which is going to be fantastic for long-term investment. And also very encouraging, 14 different people
1: have joined the development fund, which is also going to help with long-term development of Corita. You said 9,500 euros there. Well, that was after one day. And here we are a few days later, and it's up to 36,000. So they are completely sorted, basically, going forward. I love it. Watch out, Adobe. Creed is coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, maybe. Over on the GTK side of things, Guadag 2017 just wrapped up, and it looks like it was a whole bunch of upstream
1: loving between Canonical and the GNOME development team. Yeah, and it looks like some firm decisions have been made now for Ubuntu 17.10. And for me, the most important one, moving the buttons back. (laughs) <laughs> where they belong to the right hand <laughs> side you went right for it didn't you yeah
0: it seems like a trivial thing but I actually think it's huge they they say it's because of a larger design philosophy about the dock and etc but on the right hand side where you expect those window controls to be says we are Linux we are like everybody else we don't have to have our buttons on the left <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that's kind of <laughs> trivial, really. The the big news, really. You mentioned the dock thing there, so yeah. they're going to have a dock that's not Dash to dock, which is a bit strange, but okay. But really, the big news is Wayland, mm-hmm. that they really are going to go for it Yeah, as default. Yeah,
0: Wayland will be the default session. I don't know. I, I think there's also really big news in here. Uh, So there's two things I think are really big news in here, actually. First, a list of everything you're not going to get that you would expect from Unity. And I think maybe we could just bang this off really quick. This was, uh, from off the top of the head, it was no global menus, the HUD's going to be gone, alt-tab behavior is changing, messaging menus are gone, volume notifications are different, launcher integration via running apps and software center obviously is different, lenses and scopes are gone, and other tweaks that are just Unity specific probably won't end up in GNOME,
1: at least the version that's going to ship in 1710. Well, much like with Wayland, 1710 is a real test release, isn't it? Because not that many people are realistically going to use it, because you only get nine months of support with it. So it's really a testing ground for 18.04, which Mm. is what the majority of people are going to use. Mm -hmm. And so we're going back to the old days of, instead of these interim releases just being boring, snooze fests, this is actually going to be really exciting and interesting, and things are going to break probably, and they're going to have to use that development cycle over the next nine months until we get to 18.04 to fix everything and make it ready for the important one, the LTS? Because although 1710 is important, and it's certainly academically interesting, I mean, realistically, are you going to put it on any of your machines for more than just testing purposes? Not unless
0: I'm planning to go to 1804, if 1804 is solid. So I think you're right. Now, here's the thing I think we will need the most testing. I think there's some really big news tucked in this post that we have linked in the show notes. So a lot of talk about working upstream, And it sounds like at Guadic there was a lot of back and forth from the GNOME developers on how to implement some of the modifications that Canonical wants to ship with GNOME. Extensions, the doc stuff, the ambient theme. How do they do that without just stacking GNOME full of extensions? In this post, they talk about implementing modifications as a GNOME shell mode. Not as a bunch of extensions and themes lacquered on top of GNOME, but as a mode that would be listed at the login manager, just like the way GNOME Classic is implemented. This will enable Canonical to deliver another session using their upstream fonts, icons, and uh, their, their theme, and also a standard session that uses the upstream GNOME fonts, the Edwadia theme, the, the upstream shell theme with no extensions applied, like a stock GNOME. So you'll have the you'll have multiple options. And when you choose the canonical session, it's going to be all built in. And after reading this implementation, it left me wondering, why isn't this the way every distribution
1: ships their implementation of GNOME? Well, because it's kind of a non-standard way to do it. Surely the standard way is make it stock with extensions, which can then be removed. And OK, canonical are going to ship the option to have stock GNOME, but that's not going to be default, is it? And I think that's why other distros don't do that. It it just, this to me feels a little bit like the old Canonical that we thought had changed, where not invented here. Oh, I completely disagree.
0: I completely, so I not only, not only does my gut tell me that this was the way the folks at Guadic suggested Canonical go, like this was their advisement. I think Canonical was going to do it the way you just, you just outlined. Then they went to Guadac and they said, you know, we've built this mechanism and we've even designed Gnome Classic to try to show people how to do it. So that way you can deliver an experience using Gnome that doesn't have to depend on all of these breaky things and it it was designed for that. It was cre- Gnome Shell was created to allow this. So it, it seems to me the way that the Gnome project would actually recommend people do it and not just sort of hack on a bunch of extensions and themes and then ship it and then just hope that everybody's packages
1: hit the repo at the right time when you're doing your updates. Well, I suppose so, but it does feel like it's canonical taking on more of the, well, not technical debt, but, you know, taking on more of the development
0: Hmm, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I'll I'll dig around. I'll do some more reading about it and see if we can't ask some folks that work at Canonical and get a better sense of this implementation because it was a little
1: vague in the blog post too. So
0: it's an area, I think, that probably deserves further discussion.
1: Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about Blue Phones, BLU. This is a story that I almost put in last week, but I thought, hmm, I don't know if it's necessarily true. Mm. And it's come back around this week in that Amazon stopped selling them for a while. So these are low-budget Android phones, basically, which are actually these days surprisingly quite well-specced for the price. Indeed, yeah. So CryptoWire found out, I think it was a few months ago, wasn't it, Um, that these phones were phoning home, ha-ha, back to China with... Information about um, text messages and and all sorts of stuff that you want to keep private and don't want to be sending to some server in China. Sure. And it seemed that Blue had sorted it out, but now CryptoWire are saying that they haven't. And that's why Amazon pulled the phones, but now they've basically put them back on the site or certainly some of them. So it's a very confusing story that it, it seems to be a lot of misinformation here.
0: Yeah, and what I parsed out from this is a couple of odd things happened on the back end. Amazon pulled them down, but then other resellers stepped up to do fulfillment, so the phones essentially continued to ship even though the official Blue store was shut down, which, come on, Amazon, do your job right. But in fact, these phones were sending data back to China. Blue is a Chinese company, and there's a piece of software installed on these phones that sends back different metrics. And like all these wonderful pieces of software, the vendor can choose how much they turn it up and how much they turn it down. So they can they can send all the things and they can send just diagnostic metrics, version information, and basic details, which Blue claims that's what
1: they're sending. But even that, I don't really want to happen. Maybe if you could opt into it or at least opt out of it, but if it's happening in the background without you realizing it, I don't know, it's, this is just... What I dislike about OEM yeah. generally and st- stock ROMs. Yep. That's why I use Lineage and other custom ROMs, because at least it's mostly open source. There you go. Yeah, that's definitely a safer way to go, I would assume. This seems
0: to be a reoccurring story, especially on the lower priced Android phones. And I almost wonder this is nobody's really going to love the suggestion, but maybe the better solution would be for Google to share all the data they collect on all of us with the OEMs. Now, I I don't like it, but then these these guys wouldn't be rolling their own software that uses who knows what type of encryption implementation and is talking to who knows who and is including what no- who knows what information. And it might be better if Google just took every little bit of information they're recording about you, anonymized it, and shared it back with the hardware vendors. You said gave and shared there. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Maybe sold back mm, to the uh, yeah. OEMs. Yeah, good point, good point. And you know what? It'll just make, either way, it just makes Android more creepy. If the vendors are doing it or if Google's doing it, it's creepy. Yeah, just send it all back to Apple, eh, like you do. <laughs> yeah, well, it could be worse. I could be sending it to some unknown open source project that's doing God knows what with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. DigitalOcean.com. Sign up and use our promo code Here's The Thing to support the show and get a $10 credit on some really, really great services. DigitalOcean is infrastructure in seconds. You can sign up and deploy a droplet, that's their parlance, in 55 seconds or less. One of the things that makes it super fast is they use SSD storage everywhere for your droplet and for the block storage you can attach as you need it. They have lightning fast network, 40 gigabits to each hypervisor, highly available storage. They have built-in monitoring and alerting team accounts if you want to work together with people. And one of my favorite things for testing, pre-built droplets with entire open source stacks or just a base system. I really love that feature. Well... I suppose my favorite feature is the straightforward pricing. DigitalOcean.com. Go over there and use our promo code. Here's the thing. You create the account, then you apply it, and you're good to go. DigitalOcean.com, promo code. Here's the thing.
1: Okay, so we've gone 13 proper episodes without mentioning Bitcoin, and now we have to do it. Lucky 13. Yeah. So I'm not massively interested in Bitcoin because it's basically a Ponzi scheme as far as I'm concerned which may be a controversial opinion, but there you go.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, but a big event happened that I've been watching over the last few months unfold, and it happened this week. It was basically forked as Bitcoin cash. Mm-hmm. And so if you had Bitcoin already, you're going to keep them, but you've also got these Bitcoin cash now. So yeah, money has just appeared from nothing.
0: Well, this is the interesting thing that stands Bitcoin Cash out from all of the other alternative cryptocurrencies. They didn't just fork the code, they forked the blockchain, they forked the ledger. Um, and when they made that fork, all of the transactions that have ever occurred on the network went with them. So they essentially, they, they it's like a parallel timeline now. It's a sci-fi yeah. parallel timeline where uh, the transactions that happened are still valid in both
1: of these now two separate blockchains. And it did surprisingly well, didn't it? Some people were saying that it was just going to tank straight away. Yeah, there's been a lot of mounting
0: pressure since I did a podcast, I mean, like a couple of years ago about Bitcoin called Plan B, and this was beginning to really simmer because it's a core issue. Original Bitcoin just... BTC has a limitation of a shared transaction ledger. Each each one of the blocks is limited to one megabyte. And um, that's good and bad depending on who you talk to. And that's one of the things that Bitcoin Cash wanted to change is they wanted to increase that size. And that's also good and bad depending on who you talk to. But it actually just comes down to this really trivial, quote-unquote, change. One megabyte limit to a higher value. And when you make that change... It has huge ramifications because it means machines that are trying to download the blockchain and process transactions have to download more data or less data depending on which blockchain you're on. That means it may isolate out smaller players who don't have huge amounts of storage and enable big players or vice versa, depending on who you talk to. So all of the transaction history prior to August 1st, 2017, is in both of these blockchains, and now we just get to sit back and see which principle is essentially better and watch which Bitcoin companies step up to support it. Like Coinbase has been sort of dragging their feet, and now they've announced months down the road they're going to implement Bitcoin Cash support. Yeah, it hasn't had the support that... I
1: think the Bitcoin Cash people wanted, has
0: it? Perhaps, yeah. Maybe it hasn't. I think people are waiting to see where it goes. And I think there's a bigger open source story here. Blockchain technology itself, distributed database technology that is cryptographically verified is something that IBM and Oracle and the Linux Foundation and Bank of America and a lot of other really big players are investing heavily in right now. So I wonder if they're sitting back and trying to see which is better. Because they're going to be basing a lot of their future transaction technology off of blockchain technology. It's crazy to say it,
1: but these huge players are getting into blockchain
0: applications.
1: But the bigger block size for them isn't going to be a huge issue because they're not consumers. Yeah, you know, it's it's not everyday people. I They've imagine. got the money to to pay for huge servers that yeah. don't don't really care whether it's. One megabyte, eight megabytes, or or even bigger. And they may do entirely
0: different back-end data storage techniques than what we see today in the open source project. But it's still interesting to see the organic blockchain stuff really struggling to figure this out. There may be a similar sort of battle in the commercial space, different feature sets of different blockchains, and this
1: is just the beginning of it. So you didn't just immediately sell out your Bitcoin cash then? Because you've got a few Bitcoins, haven't you?
0: You know, I'm just standing by at this point uh, and just kind of going to see where it goes. Bitcoin itself, as we record, is at $3,200 right now. Yeah, it's nuts. So I feel like at this point, it could go all the way to the moon and it could crash
1: down to nothing. So I'm just going to hold and see where things go. How much was it worth back in the Plan B days then? couple of 100.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's what I was I mean, I know I don't think I ever paid more than $200 for a Bitcoin. Maybe not even that much, 175.
1: Yeah. Man, I I thought about investing at the time and I just kept thinking, "No, oh, it's going to crash. It's going to crash." And it just <laughs> keeps on going <laughs> up and yeah, up. And yeah, that's the classic uh, Bitcoin I, uh, conundrum. <laughs> well, it's it's that's why it's a Ponzi scheme because, you know, the people who get in now are just not um, you know, they're not going to make any money, or maybe they will. Maybe it'll go up to maybe. you know a hundred thousand yeah. dollars of Bitcoin because that's the, it's got that built into it. These tiny fractions, yeah. and that yeah. was kind of yeah. always the plan, wasn't it? Yeah. That one, no one would um, trade in one Bitcoin; it would be tiny fractions of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, you never know, Joe. Maybe uh, eventually, eventually
0: you'll set up an online business and take Bitcoin as a payment and you'll make it big. You'll become a Bitcoin billionaire. (laughs) Yeah, never know. In the meantime, Firefox has a few more
1: experiments that you could uh, burn some time while you watch the Bitcoin market. Yeah. So Mozilla have been spending their Yahoo money on more stuff. The most interesting one to me is um, send.firefox.com. Yeah which works, I understand, in other browsers, and it's private encrypted file sharing. So it's kind of a competitor to WeTransfer, where you basically send a file through email, so you email them a link. And in this case, it gets stored on the server for one day or for one download, and then it's deleted forever. Isn't that sort of the interesting feature, is that it's a
0: limited-time link, which means maybe Mozilla doesn't have to be as concerned about what
1: people are uploading because it all gets deleted? Well, does it really get deleted, though? Because it's on AWS. So I suppose it gets deleted after a fashion. But if there's something that the authorities really want to know about, then they're going to find it, I would imagine. This is a really odd
0: thing for them to be working on. It sure is handy. But boy, if you run it on S3, that's just nothing but a cost center for them. If you look at testpilot.firefox.com, there's a couple of other ones that jump out at me, like a snooze tabs experiment and a container experiment for Firefox. Not like Docker container, but uh, you can create containers for different social media accounts or Google accounts, and every tab in this container will be logged in as one account, and you can have multiple tabs with multiple containers all up on the screen at the same time. So in one tab, I could have my work account. In another tab, I could have my personal account. And it's not incognito. It's contained profiles. Pretty nice feature. Sort of similar to how Chrome does personas, but even a bit nicer than personas. I do worry about the CPU and RAM overhead for that, though. Just throw all the hardware at it, Joe. It's the modern <laughs> it's the modern workload. It's the web browser workload yeah. of the future. These kind of features though, where they're building in things like snoozing tabs and containers into Firefox, that stuff strikes a like a that's what I want Mozilla working on kind of know with me. Send, pretty nice to have, but if it went away tomorrow, there'd still be a hundred alternatives and they wouldn't all be cost
1: centers for the Mozilla project. But it's it's a pretty nice one at that. Yeah, and what's interesting to me about Send is that it's open source, the Mozilla Public License, so you can host it yourself. Yes, you can. That is really nice. It's up on GitHub. I was looking at that and that is impressive. It's it's cool to see them
0: working on well, I don't know, code stuff, you know, and not like so much political stuff or mm. huge like the, the the common voice stuff is great, but it seems so massive and so nebulous. Whereas this feels like I can actually apply it to my Firefox experience right now.
1: It's like it's really tangible. So I like to see that kind of stuff. Well, the Common Voice, it seems that they are implementing it already with their voice search. So yeah, they, they're yeah. pretty, pretty serious about that stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Red Hat's pretty serious about file systems. And so that's why when they announced that they were deprecating ButterFS, it caught a lot of attention.
1: It doesn't look good for B2FS, ButterFS at this point, does it? No. If even Red Hat's given up on it. Yeah. yeah. They say the
0: ButterFS file system has been in technology preview state since its initial release of Red Hat Enterprise Linux 6. And that Red Hat will not be moving ButterFS to a fully supported feature, and it will be removed in future major releases of Red Hat Enterprise
1: Linux. Well, here we are a year, more than a year, after Canonical put ZFS into Ubuntu 16.04, and they still haven't been sued, and it looks like they've got away with it. They would say there was nothing to get away with in the first place. But it, Red Hat is just not willing to take that risk by the looks of things. They'd rather develop something completely new yeah. because they don't have any faith in B3FS and they don't want to take the risk on ZFS. So that that really speaks volumes to me. That I thought that Canonical would be the test ground and if they got away with it, then Red Hat would follow suit. Do
0: you suppose it's because Red Hat's principally a US company and so perhaps they have a different target painted on their back? That is certainly possible yeah i wonder it's it is um damning for butterfs because i think what it really speaks to and i go back to this is it seems like eventually butterfs could be turned into something pretty great because it's it's close but that but that name is now associated with a dumpster fire file system and it's bad branding and if you you don't want to be the consultant or the sysadmin going in and saying yeah i'd like to deploy all of these terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of very important files on butterfs that's just that's a really weak case to make and it just takes somebody googling your proposal and then just totally shooting you down it's it's essentially a toxic
1: brand yeah whereas xfs that red hat seems to be doubling down on doesn't have that No. And baggage. Right. XFS is really, really well respected. I've I've deployed
0: it myself in production for years. It's a it's a solid file system, it has a great lineage. And if you combine Red Hat's newfound love for XFS with some recent acquisitions and an overall project they're working on, you start to see the story of what could be their ZFS alternative. So on August 1st, Red Hat announced they've acquired Permabit. Which is a company that builds data duplication, or sorry, deduplication and compression software. You may not have heard of them because they focused on selling directly to OEMs. So they would bundle their solution on top of Linux. It includes kernel modules and Red Hat seems to think it's better for containers and virtualization where they have really fast storage and they want to compress down on that really fast storage. Having talked to Alan Jude about this, it actually is a very common work case because CPUs are so fast and um, NVMe storage and SSDs are so fast that the system can read and write more when it's compressed and read it faster because the files are small. So you actually get higher throughput using compression, and you get more storage space. It's not like your grandpa's compression. It's some really modern-day stuff. And Permabit's one of the companies that's working on this on Linux. Well, and now they're owned by
1: Red Hat. And so their new strategy is going to be called Stratus, which is not ready yet, and it's looking like it's maybe two or three years out before we have feature parity with ZFS. But they are really going for it. Yeah, Stratus is an
0: interesting approach. So... A lot of you out there will love the fact that supposedly it's written in Rust, which, if you're going to be building file system-layered tools... Rust is a good language to use. So in this scenario, you could take a base file system like XFS, and then Stratus takes a layered approach to replace ZFS's individual components. So Stratus can lay on a copy-on-write layer using components that are pretty much already built into Linux, a RAID layer using, again, stuff already built into Linux. In fact, most of the functionality in ZFS is throughout Linux in all these different parts. It's just not all in one single file system. So Stratus is a layered approach that will set on top of XFS or potentially other file systems and bring in these types of features, probably using a little LVM on the back end too, while some of you may cringe at this, it's taking some of Linux's most well-developed, tried-and-true features and bringing them all under the Stratus umbrella to all work together. It's actually a pretty solid approach. If you take tools that are tried-and-true in production in the enterprise environment for years and get them all working together, it's probably going to work pretty quick. It's probably going to be pretty solid and trusted.
1: Or you could just use ZFS.
0: Uh, or, yes, you could just use ZFS. In fact, this is the big competition Is Canonical is saying, hey, look, you want an L- Ubuntu LTS? We got live patch. Lots of people love to run it in production. And now we've got the ZFS file system. Come on, we've already got this stuff. And you've got to imagine this is Red Hat going, crap. ButterFS didn't get there. We've got to get this going. It has to be production ready. Enterprise customers are expecting a certain level of performance and reliability out of the box today. We've got to pivot. We've got to, quote unquote, pivot, Joe, and make this change. And this has got to be a response in at least some
1: some little amount to Ubuntu shipping ZFS. I have to, I just have to see it that way. But it just goes to show that b must be in a pretty ropey state. Otherwise, why don't Red Hat just put their resources into that and make it better and improve it? I think
0: it's the brand thing. I think it's the dumpster fire branding. It, it's mm. It's just gotten to the point where nobody's really, well, it's a joke. It's a bit of a joke file system. And uh, I think they're just saying that's, well, we're not, we can't compete with that. We're not getting a lot of traction. It's a hard sale. And uh, I think the other question to have to ask now is when does SUSE make a change or will they?
1: Well, I was going to say, tell that to Richard Brown, see what he says. Well, I would Um, ask him. You're going to
0: see him soon. You should
1: bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, when I last spoke to him, I asked him about it and he said it's fine. They just don't put in the, the raid stuff that. Is broken, and it otherwise it works fine for them. Yeah, the, you know, you
0: use a couple of build flags, you throw on a couple of patches, you disable a couple of features,
1: it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how file systems should work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm, I wonder if they will move away from it, because they do seem pretty sold on it, don't they? Yeah, it's pretty well integrated. Part of me, to be honest, hopes they don't. Wouldn't it be great if
0: they just don't care about the Dumpster Fire branding, and they just kept hacking away at it, and say, five years, they come back, we come back to it and s- it's solid. They've they've really made it into a great product. That could be great for everybody. Yeah, and then we've got three options at that point. Yeah, take that ZFS. A proper Linux thing. Instead of building one replacement, we build three great ones that all have their own advantages and nobody can decide. That's how it should be. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Yeah, okay, good. Well, in the meantime, keep following the news by subscribing to Linux Action News. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes and check out linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. Yeah, and you can support the whole network at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Signal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.